0: Pray and, and kind of dive into it together. It's a, this is an incredible time in the history of the church, okay? It's, it's the first part of the book of Acts. Jesus has been, he's been betrayed and crucified, resurrected. He's made these resurrection appearances, and before the very eyes of these gathered apostles and disciples in a crowd of about 105, Jesus literally is taken up into heaven before their eyes. Acts chapter 1. He ascends into heaven. The Father literally takes Jesus up, and they watch Jesus, see his sins. And then these gathered believers are just left there. They're left there standing around going, what do we do now? Because Jesus had told them that they were going to sin, or that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit would come upon them, but, but they had to wait to go back and just wait. So what they did was they gathered back, and they went, got together, and they went to this house, and they gathered in this little room, and they just sat there, And just waited. And you can only imagine the kind of uh, trepidation that would be going through these, these people. I mean, they had given their life to following this Jesus around the countryside. The emotion that had unfolded over the past 40 or 50 days is unbelievable. Watching this guy who you gave your life to be brutally beaten, betrayed, crucified. And then to have the joy of seeing him raised from the dead and the resurrection appearances. And then all these things that God is doing. And then just to be left now waiting. Well, in Acts chapter 2, the promised Holy Spirit comes, and basically we see at Pentecost the birth of the church. The church just springs forth, and, and the Holy Spirit falls on these believers, and they begin to speak in other languages, and, and all of a sudden, people are coming into Christ by the thousands. And it's an incredibly exciting time, because the church is being born, the gospel is electric, and people are meeting Christ. And it's probably, if you look at church history, the most significant time in all of church history history, if you will, the birth and sort of explosion of the church and the gospel. And so that's what's happening. And, and, and they're in the middle of this sort of gospel explosion where we pick up in Acts chapter three and, and a set of kind of chapters, three and four, and I'm going to read through them and I'm going to talk about them and paraphrase them a little bit, where things really begin to change for me. And God used these chapters to change my picture of church. Um, to change my picture of what it looks like when we actually live for and encounter Christ, how that changes the church, how it changes our understanding of gospel and mission and evangelism and all those things, because what I've come to recognize is that Jesus doesn't, doesn't just change lives, but Jesus changes everything, and uh, he certainly does that in our picture of those things. So before we open those texts together, let's just take a moment, let's pray, let's ask that God would open and lighten our hearts, and then we will dive into it together. Lord, I thank you for this church not just this particular church, but your church, your gathered believers, Father the Ecclesia. I thank you that you uh, use people as your instruments of witness in the world. God, imperfect, flawed people you use to demonstrate your glory, which is just sort of beyond me. And I love that. And this morning, Lord, what we're going to see is that picture, that how you use ordinary seemingly ordinary people to do incredible things. And God, I, I know that that's the call for the church. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, you would teach us in a really powerful way. Take just a moment and ask God to, to teach you something this morning that he would just sort of instruct your heart, maybe showing you something new, taking some familiar verses and, and teaching you something new. Just, just pray that. Pray for someone beside you, around you, uh, fernie behind you. Just pray for somebody else. I say this each week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence. Make your word come alive to us. We know that encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we don't take these moments lightly. Teach our hearts in Jesus' name. So we're going to start in the first ten verses of the uh, book of Acts, chapter three. You, you may have heard me talk about these before a little bit. We're going to, I'm shifting it around and looking at it a little bit differently, but I hope they're somewhat familiar because they're verses and chapters that have so shaped our history and my understanding of the gospel that chances are they poured out through what I teach quite often. But, but this is the first uh, ten kind of verses, and then we'll just kind of work through the couple of chapters. It says this one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at The time of prayer at three in the afternoon and a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he looked at them and asked them for money and Peter looked straight at him as did John and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention expecting to get something from them and then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have but what I give you I give in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, they helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We're going to look at this text and, and explore a few of the ways that Jesus sort of changes people. That when we encounter the risen Christ, that we encounter Jesus, it it has this effect where he alters everything that we are. And Jesus literally changes everything everything. And the scenario that we see is not uncommon. Peter and John, after having been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2, they now take up the mantle of being the preachers and proclaimers of the kingdom of God, and they go to the temple courts, which is exactly what Jesus would do. He went to the place where the religious were, and he began to proclaim the kingdom of God message, which is exactly what Peter and John do at the time of prayer. There were technically three times of prayer, but they go at the. we see them going at, the, at this time at the 3 o'clock hour to the temple. Gathered there in Jerusalem, people would gather there for prayer, it was when the big crowd was, and the disciples and Peter and John would often go up there as Jesus did and preach. Paul would actually take this practice as well when he would go to other places. He would go to the, the temple and he'd find people to talk to at those times when people gather. And so Peter and, and John go to the temple courts at the time of prayer basically to proclaim the coming kingdom of God to people. And as they do, they see this man being brought um, to the temple gate. So the gate that goes into the temple, they see a man, a crippled man. We know that he's got some kind of feet issues because we see him be healed in his, and his feet and his ankles become strong. And he's being brought, meaning people are carrying him to the temple gate. And if you think about it, it's somewhat wise. I mean, if you're going to beg for resources, where the better place to go and beg for money than outside church or the temple where people are going and they're already feeling bad, right? So I mean, might as well just sit outside there. I mean, they can't overlook me on your way to church. You can overlook me on your way to Sam's. But you can't overlook me on your way to church, right? So if I sit outside the gate every day, chances are I'm going to get some more money because, you know, people are feeling a little churchy and so they're feeling temple And so they uh, need to give some, some dollars to the poor before they go in and make themselves feel better about God and worship and all those things. And so sure enough, these guys, I'm assuming guys, maybe a group of, of people, women and men, bring this crippled man to the gate. And they sat in there at the gate called Beautiful, and people would walk through and they'd have to walk right past him. Every day. And we know this guy did this every day because when the the crowd gathers in a moment, we're going to see that they recognize him as the man that always sat by the gate. So every day at this time, probably the three times of prayer, people would bring him to the gate and he would sit there and he would beg for years and years and years. And you've heard me say this before, but there was an, an understanding back in the day that if you were handicapped on any level, if you were most likely being punished for your sin or for your parents' sin, that was the feeling happens when the disciples stop Jesus and they say, Jesus, who sinned to make this guy blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus said, well, well it's not the sin. It's, this has happened so that God's glory can be displayed and he heals the guy. So there was an understanding that if you had some kind of physical ailment, whether it was a skin disease or whether it was being a cripple or whether you were the woman subject to bleeding, that somehow your sin was keeping you from a whole life. And so you really felt like God hated you. And you were unclean. You had to walk around your whole life realizing that anybody else touched you because you were sinful, you now made them unclean. So everywhere this guy went, most likely as a cripple sitting by the gate, and he called into the middle of a crowd, or when he went to the middle of a crowd, he had to call out the words, unclean, unclean, everywhere he went. Lepers had to do the same thing. Because if they came in contact with someone, then they would be made unclean, especially people going to a time of prayer at temple. So the stigma of this man all, all his life was that he was unclean and that he was broken and that God was probably punishing him either for his sin or for someone else's sin. And so all he had was a few kind folks that would wa- walk him to the gate and they had to wait on some church goers, temple goers, to throw him some coins. That's his whole existence. So they bring him to this gate and he lays there at the gate and it says as he was walking by, Peter and John see him and they stop and they look right at him. And they say, silver or gold, look, I can't give you. But what I can give you, I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Walk. And they said they reached down, grabbed his hand, and pulled him up. And instantly his ankles became strong. And the man began to run and jump and run straight into the temple courts praising God. And the people start coming in amazement going, isn't that the guy that sat out by the temple courts all day long? And they came over in wonder and amazement at what God had just done. The first part of this text we're going to look at is a powerful one. And it's a demonstration of just how Jesus changes things. And Jesus changes people that follow him. I mean, think about Peter and John. I mean, they were radically altered by their time with Christ. Just think about how they interact with this guy. They come up to the temple gate where he is, and what do they do? They actually stop and they look at him. They take a moment and they stop and they look at this person that everybody else for years and years and years would just walk right by. Maybe flip a few coins, feeling guilty or whatever, but they just walked right by. We get the sense that this is sort of how Jesus lived, right? Every time he walked and he went places, he would stop with those that others wouldn't stop with, and he'd spend time with them. So Peter and John, being altered by the way they kind of encountered Christ, begin to live as Jesus did. They begin to mimic the way that Jesus lived. They begin to see people the way that Jesus saw people. So they stopped at this gate and they looked at him. And it says they actually looked right at him, meaning they caught his eye. And they spoke to him. And they said, listen, sir, silver or gold, we can't give you. In other words, we don't have any money. But what I can give you, I can give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And they heal him. The guys took a moment to speak truth into someone's life. They could have given money, they could have shared, they could have done whatever, but they took a moment basically to speak truth, and then did this sort of miraculous healing takes place, which we'll talk about in a second, and the guy's life begins to change. But what's really remarkable is what they did right after they said, walk. It says that Peter reached down and he touched him, he grabbed his hand and he pulled him up, and instantly the man's ankles became strong. This is exactly how Jesus lived. Jesus stopped, and he looked at people the rest of the world wouldn't look at. He spoke truth to the rest of the world that the people wouldn't speak to, and he touched those the world wouldn't touch. On their way to the religious establishment, Peter and John, having been altered by their time with Christ, began to live differently. They began to live as Jesus did. 1 John 2.6 says, Those who claim to live in him, live in Jesus, must walk as he did. The picture is, is that when we begin to follow Christ, he changes everything. I no longer can see the world the same way. I no longer can just live in ignorance as bliss. I see people, right? I don't put them in categories per se homeless, poor, black, white, struggling, sinful, whatever. But I see people, heartbeats, lives. And I don't want to interact with those lives. I'm not afraid to touch those lives because that's how Jesus lived. And when I truly began to see this passage for what it was, it changed my heart because my church experience had been lobbied and kind of had been in categories with people that interacted like me and looked like me and responded like me and sung like me and dressed like me and and lived like me. And I could very easily just exist in those categories. And when I felt bad, I could give or do or go down to the City Rescue Mission and serve a meal and fill that sort of void of, of living in a sort of kind of... A fluent middle-class way by serving a meal or two until I felt bad next time, and then I knew we need to get out there and serve again. And that was my existence of church. When I began to look at this, it really began to change me because it said if I'm going to follow Christ, things have to change. And not just with the broken beggar, but with people, that I've got to be willing to see people, to look into their eyes the way Jesus did, to speak to them, and more so to touch them, the rest of the world that the world, that the world won't put hands on. Jesus changes all of those things. But Jesus also changes this this crippled beggar. And not just the sort of the physical way, because he does do that, but he changes what he thinks he needs. Because what does this crippled beggar think that he needs? He thinks he needs money. And they stop and they say, look at me. And it says right here that the man looked up at them because he thought, right, that he was gonna get some money out of them. He gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. That's what he needed. If I can just get a few dollars, then my trip to the temple gate will be worth it. Which is what he thought he needed. But what does the crippled man really need? He needs to be healed. And not just physically, but he needs his heart healed. And we begin to realize that when we follow Christ, he changes the things that we think we need. So what happens? They reach down, They pick this guy up, and instantly his legs are healed. And physical healing in Scripture, and even now, is never for the sake of healing. It's always for God's glory. Always. God brings about His own glory in those moments. And that's exactly what happens. Because as soon as he gets strength in his legs, what does he do? He runs straight into the temple courts, a place that he has never been allowed to go before. Where all the religious sort of establishment and those that were in charge, they gathered there. And he busts through those temple gates, jumping and dancing and singing and running. I mean, look at how it kind of frames that out. That he jumped and he praised and walking and he praised God. And when people saw this, um, they recognized him as the same man. And we begin to see that Jesus changes what we need, what we think we need. He begins to change our hearts. When he begins to change our hearts, our lives change. This man would never go back to being a beggar. He would never go back and say, boy, I really want to do that again. But when Jesus changed his heart and changed his needs, all of a sudden he realized that he'd spent his time looking for the wrong thing. If I could just get this. And what Jesus did was change what he needed, and it changed his life completely. And I think that most of us, right, will go through our lives or most of our lives wanting Jesus to meet a certain set of needs. And when we really begin to follow him, what we understand is that we've been looking for all the wrong things, that we thought a few extra dollars would do or a girlfriend would do or a husband would do or what we thought these things would do to our lives and how they would change us. We begin to walk with Christ. We begin to think that's not really what we needed. I didn't need a few extra dollars. What I needed was a change of perspective. I didn't need a husband. What I needed was an identity in Christ. And when Jesus changes this guy's need, it changes his life and he doesn't remain the same. But most of us will understand those things, yet we'll continue to sit by the temple gate waiting for the one thing that we don't even need. Because I'd rather have what I don't really need than to take. But when we follow Christ, he changes our needs. He changes our hearts. We're just like this crippled beggar. I mean, don't think you're Peter and John. Most of us are the crippled beggar. We're broken spiritually, completely and totally destroyed. We are only in need of rescue. We can't do it on our own. We're sitting there crippled and broken. And Jesus can do only... What Jesus can do which is heal us and restore us. And when he does, instead of running and jumping and breaking through the doors of the religious establishment and kicking him in and saying, I don't care what you think about me. This is the most incredible thing that's ever happened. Jesus changed my life. We sit by the temple gate. Because we don't want to call a lot of attention to ourselves, And we don't really know what Jesus just did for us. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, that most of us don't know what it means to be saved. That we've just gone from death to life. And our churches are filled with people that file in in their fancy clothes and their whatever we're wearing today and file in here and sit in the back and sing a few songs and walk out. Totally unaware of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Because if we truly got it, if you truly understood that Jesus has taken you from death to life, to redeem you, brought you from being crippled and broken to whole, there would be running and dancing and praising and singing and an attitude of, like, I don't care because I want the world to know. Instead, what happens is we begin to get moved. We give you that sort of half a hand raise. I kind of really worship but don't want to draw attention to myself, so I keep it down here, right in here area, say, "Yay, yeah, God. But really, if we understood what God was doing, man, this place couldn't contain our praise. It would break. We would break it out. Because listen to what happens when you begin to live a changed life. Listen to who else gets changed. So as this gentleman gets healed and he breaks through this temple gates, running and praising, you can almost see Peter and John just kind of like, oh, there it goes, there it goes, there it goes, running around. I don't know if you ever saw the Chevy Chase movie Funny Farm. Probably not. It's probably a terrible reference. They buy the dog and the dog just takes off for the hills. A couple of times later, you just see it running back over there. It's probably not funny if you haven't seen it, but it's funny to me. So uh, I feel like that's the guy. He's just skipping around, running through there and high-fiving people and everyone's standing around going, what is going on? Well, listen to what happens. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. He went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. When you begin to live a changed life, right, God begins to use you to change the people around you. That's true. If that gentleman would have sat there at the temple gate, sitting in his own kind of crippledness, realizing that God has healed him but being really comfortable where he is, His life becomes an ineffective tool. But when he begins to say, God, I'm going to live the change that you told me I am, and I bust through the temple gates and I praise and I sing and I say, my life is different, people come running from all over. You know the single greatest evangelistic tool that we have is not a booklet, right? It's not a booklet. It's not a bringing someone to church. It's not a method. It's a visible, changed life by Christ. That when your life is changed by Jesus and you live differently, it is the single greatest evangelistic tool that we have for you to live the way that Christ has changed you. When people see that, they go, wait a minute, I worked with this guy for 14 years. I know what he's about. How is he so different now? When you begin to live a visibly changed life, God uses that as a tool to draw people to himself. Jesus changes everything. So listen to what happens next. So We've got these changes. We've got the John and Peter change. We've got the, this crippled beggar change. We've got this crowd beginning to change. Verse 11, while the beggar was holding on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And then he goes on to talk about the power of God. But this is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture, honestly. And they're standing in front of this massive crowd in the middle of the temple courts, With all the religious kind of elite watching on. You'll see in a minute that all the Sadducees and Pharisees are watching from a distance. All the people have gathered around. and They're standing right in the middle of the big temple where all religion happens. Right? And this is the picture that we see. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them. So they're standing there. Crippled beggar still in his stinky, ratty beggar clothes holding on to Peter and John. Right? while crowds came running over. And at that moment, Peter begins to speak to the crowd with this sort of draped, broken, stinky beggar guy hanging on his shoulder. Peter says, why are you so astonished? Do you think it's by my godliness or by my ability that God did this? No, but it's because God is that big. And it wasn't Peter from a pulpit at an arm's distance from people, but it was broken people draped all over as a demonstration of God's power all over Peter and John, as Peter proclaims truth. And I thought, man, the picture of the church doesn't get a whole lot better than this for me. You've got the broken and the proclaimers, lives mixed mixed together, draped all over each other, stinky and smelly, dressed nice in the middle of church, talking about a God that changes lives to a bunch of people that don't believe it. This is the picture of what the gospel message is. It's not a bunch of people that look exactly alike and live in the right circles to fit into some kind of club so that we can all shake hands and make sure that nobody feels weird but it's a crazy mix of life where people come from all over because they've all been crippled beggars. And they're hanging all over each other because they're not really sure they know how to walk even though they've been set free. And somebody in the middle of all that starts talking about Jesus and people start running from all over. To me, it's an incredible picture. But, as you might assume, the religious establishment hates it. Hates it. So listen to what happens next. priest and the captain of the temple guard, all right, this is chapter 4, verse 1. So Peter gives this long speech and it's just incredible. But chapter 4, verse 1, this is what happens. While they're all still standing there, all right, the priest and the captain of the temple guard, because the temple needed a guard with the captain, and the, and, the, and the Sadducees were there and they came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking. So Peter's in the middle of this sort of preaching at the crowd and people are hearing this and the beggars draped all over him and they've got this moment here. Right in the middle while they were still speaking, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were disturbed by it. So what did they do? They seized Peter and John because it was evening, and they put them in jail until the next day. But many heard the message and believed, and the number of men, men, meaning not just women, so you add the women in, you got more than 5,000, but the number of men grew to about 5,000, Peter and John. Beggar draped all over them. Everybody's watching. Sadducees and Pharisees freaking out because they're talking about Jesus being the resurrection of the dead. So what do they do? They seize them and arrest them because it's night. And apparently you can't put somebody on trial at night. You've got to do it during the day. And so they seize them and they throw them in jail. See, the religious establishment that's transformed our understanding of a relationship with Christ into religious production can't stand the gospel, the real gospel. It loves a health gospel. It loves a gospel about the promotion of ourselves and our own institutions. And it loves a gospel that's about me. And the religious establishment can't stand the true gospel, the gospel that's messy and ugly and lives in the middle of beggars and and non-beggars, in the middle of stinky and not stinky, in the middle of broken and not broken, without clear lines of distinction, people gather together and just proclaiming. The religious establishment doesn't like that because it does away with power. There's no power here. Peter's actually diffusing the power, saying, it's just about Jesus, and you killed him. And the religious leaders freak out. Not all that uncommon from our experience on some level. We've created power structures in our churches. Pastors rob the people of what they're called to do, and they put it in their own roles, and they say, this is what we have to do, and no one else is allowed to do it. You can't find that in Scripture, but it's what we've done. We've created power structures that hate the real gospel. Because the real gospel is ugly, and the real gospel is messy. And I don't use ugly in terms of bad. I use ugly in terms of it's a mess. And it is not for the faint of heart because it does just this. It makes people touch those that no one will want to touch. It makes us speak to people we don't want to speak to. And I'm not just talking about the poor and the broken. I'm talking about the people that you can't stand that live next to you. That arrogant guy that's on your daughter's soccer team. All of them. So they put him in jail, right? So check this out. next day, verse 5, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law, well, they met in Jerusalem. They all got together. Ananias, the high priest, was there, or Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas and John and Alexander. These are all big deals, all right? You might as well be naming the top religious people. They all get together, right? All of their men, the high priest's family, the whole family comes. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they brought them to this question. By what power or name did you do this? So that's their big question. Right? They get all the high, kind of falutin religious people in the one room, and they, they put John and, and, and Peter in there, and the beggar's still running around the hillside somewhere, and they, they put him in that room, and they say, By what power did you do this? And this is the response. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, again, not speaking on his own, said to this, Rulers and elders and the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and ask how he was healed, then know this, right? You and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. But whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healed. He was the stone by which the builders rejected. He became the capstone. Listen to verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. At that moment in time, John and Peter signed their death warrant. They signed their certificate. The moment they proclaim that there's no other avenue to heaven, no other avenue to salvation than Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, Jesus of Nazareth. At that moment in time, they basically said, kill us. Because they just took the whole way of life that this religious establishment had been built on. And they said, it's a lie. Or it's incomplete. And you killed the capstone. Now you can imagine the religious leaders freak out, right? Basically they're saying, look, all roads don't lead to heaven. Everything has to go through Christ. And the religious leaders freak him out and they kick him out, paraphrase this story, get us to the end, kick him out of the room and they start going, what in the world are we going to do? Because here's the problem. We've got a guy that we all know was crippled. And they're gonna, if you keep reading, you'll see him say this. We've got a guy that we all know was broken and guess what? He is walking around, not one of us can deny it. So what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we get these guys to close their mouths when we saw with our own eyes what happened? And they came to this understanding. Well, we can't deny what happened, but here's what we can do. Verse 18. They called them back in and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So that's the big plan. Bring them back in. We can't deny what's happened. Here's what we need you to do quit talking about Jesus. Everybody does that, we're all going to be good, right? Life will be good if you stop talking about Jesus. No one's going to get uncomfortable. No one's going to get weird. You don't have to bring it up at parties. Live your own life, your own sort of Christian way, and that's fine if that's yours, but don't talk about Jesus. That's what they say. But of course, Peter and John replied, hey... Judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They don't say, they don't make some kind of big production and be like, how can you tell us to do that? He says, listen, here's here's the deal. I can't stop talking about it. Like, I would like to, but I can't. Do you know how he has changed me? Like, I cannot stop talking about what I have seen and what I have heard. This is the call of following Christ. Like, I just can't help it. I'm not the same. I'm not the same person. I can't stop talking about it. And I know that it would be nice if I did. And I know that things would be a little easier and a little less uncomfortable at times. But here's the deal. How? I'm a different person. I am changed. Jesus changed everything. He didn't just change where I go to church and how I give my money, but he changed all of me. And you're asking me not to talk about it. So, I can't. And that means you kill me, kill me. And you don't get any other sense than that. So, of course, basically they have to release them, And they go outside and keep talking about Jesus. And I absolutely love this. Because do you see what's happening? Peter and John spent time with Jesus and he turned their worlds upside down. They no longer could just walk by the crippled guy without seeing him. Because they'd seen Jesus every single day. talk to everybody, guys just like him. They'd seen Jesus spit in his own hand and touch the mouth of a guy that was deaf and mute. They'd seen Jesus lay his hands on people feed 5000, cry with those. They'd seen him mourn over Lazarus. They'd seen him wipe away tears of broken people. And they were with Jesus and they were changed. They couldn't help it. So when they walked into church, temple, religious establishment, they couldn't help it. They were changed. They saw him, they looked at him, they spoke him and they spoke to him and they touched him. Right? And then this guy was changed, and when his life was changed, it changed everybody, and everything's changing. And it's all because of Jesus. Wrap it up with this. Jesus changes everything. And it's this singular message that's turned my world upside down, that's changed our church, that turned our church into something, basically. That gives us reason to be on mission, on gospel, to love our neighbors, to go into our neighborhoods, to proclaim the truth. This is what sends us as far as one street over. It's what sends us into the heart of the urban area. It's what sends us you to your neighbors that live next door to you. It's what sends us 5,000 miles away to partner with our friends that have given their life to tell people that don't know the gospel. That is the truth. I can't help it. Sorry. But I just can't. And that's the way the call the church should be. We just can't help it. It's not the call for the religious few that work here, but it's everybody that's had their life touched by Christ, and things just aren't the same. I don't get the luxury to walk right by you anymore, because Jesus has changed my heart, and I'm the crippled beggar. How do I walk by someone who looks just like me? This morning, we have this unique opportunity to sort of pray over and send out our China mission team. They're not really any different than anybody else that uh, we would love and send into our neighborhood. Sometimes we elevate the call of people that go and do foreign work as if it's somehow, that is a big bug, as if it is somehow um, more noble. The truth is it's not true at all. It's a, a call for all of us to live what I just explained every day of our lives with every group of people we're around, meaning that you're called not to walk by the cubicles of the people you work with, by the doors of your neighbors, by the people in your family. There's no more noble call because somebody goes overseas. However, however, when we send those people, we want to make sure that we're sending them in the right manner, in the right way. We're all sent all the time. But the picture is that when God calls us to go to the very ends of the earth, we want to be a church that participates in that whole mission. It's a both and. We go to our neighbors, we go to the ends of the world. So we have a unique opportunity to do that, to pray over them, to ask God's favor and protection over this team, but as well to continue the gospel mantle here. All the time. We all participate in mission together. So I'm going to invite our China mission team to come up here, uh, right here up front. And then we're just going to lay some hands on them and pray for them. And then we're going to close in uh, worship this morning.